Okay, and uh, with the proper corrections and date, I don't know how, I, well, I do know how I jumped from 1910 to 1911. How I didn't mentally note it and thought I was still in 1910 is another story, but we continue reading and studying Baseball of the Season 1911 through the uh, evening paper here, the Evening World. Uh, we were looking at the final edition, and hopefully this is a better microphone, and uh, let us move along to... Now, what happens is, because this is an evening paper, and I'm assuming conventions um, of the day, there is no Sunday evening newspaper. So, if, if luckily we're before the season. If there's like a gap or things that I were, are not reported, we'll do a little digging around and maybe find another paper to do for uh, the Sunday fix, so to speak. But uh, this means we have moved up to the Evening World Final Edition, April 3rd, 1911. And we have at the top of our page, it's formatted a little different, and we I guess that column we read last time is a weekly column, but uh, there is a cartoon with the title, The Umps Have Had Their Eyes Tested, They're All Wonders. And uh, what we have is a series of various uh, little drawings of men having their eyes looked at and um, let's see doc it's a pipe that's a section of one of charlie murphy's new vests now oh yeah the guy saying now describe the object in front of you uh and then there's a man in a chair and the doctor is talking to him and behind the doctor is a window with a little speck on it and the patient is saying doc do you see that fly on the window well i can see a fly easy from the home plate to the center field fence marvelous says the doctor and the caption says recommended vision above average and then there's a smaller drawing with a uh, man kind of following another guy who's walking fast towards a uh, tavern because there's a sign on it that says beer five cents and uh, the I guess doctor says young man such an optic as yours would be wasted in a minor league and the guy is saying hey doc see that sign the implications being that he can spot the places to get a beer proves his acumen. Um, quite correct. Close both eyes firmly and face this way. Now, what do you see? And the uh, patient is sitting there indolently saying nothing at all, even though the man is holding up a sign that has a one on it. Vision extremely accurate, results same at all ranges, is the caption to that one. And finally, uh, the caption being vision normal, 
It has uh, a man leaning over looking into looks like a telescope, and it looks like the doctor is holding money in front of that. And the guy is saying, as far as I can see, it's a dollar bill. Now look closely at this dollar bill, closing the left eye, and tell me what it is. Okay, yep. Yep, vision normal. Good stuff. And uh, let's get to the meat of the matter because we're going right to our manager, McGraw, giving jolt to those who think Giants will win pennant. Says team much pay, must pay more attention to details in order to win. By Bozeman Bulger, staff correspondent of the Evening World with the team out of Greensboro, North Carolina, Monday, April 3rd. While the Giants were scooting across the piney woods country from Atlanta to Greensboro last night, the question of the championship arose, and it was evident that every player on the team had the pennant bee buzzing in his bonnet. At the height of the optimistic powwow, manager McGraw spoke right out in school and gave some of the prophets a jolt that they are likely to remember for some time to come. I think we've got a chance myself, said McGraw, as he shot this one straight from the shoulder. But you boys have got to pay more attention to the little details of the game or you'll flop. A dozen games were lost last year, just as you lost that one in Atlanta on Saturday. And if you figure out that dozen of games would have won us the pennant if the result had been reversed. What's the idea, Mac? asked Captain Larry Doyle. What have we been pulling this time? Why, you are the fellow who pulled it yourself replied the manager. I suppose you remember when you got one base in the last inning and stole second. That was all right in its way, but you overlooked a chance to walk to third, and you stood there tied. There were three balls on the batter and no strikes. If you had watched close, you would have seen that the pitcher was working himself to death to get a strike over. He would have taken no chance on throwing to a base, and he couldn't afford to pitch out for the batter, as it would have been four balls. All you had to do is walk down to third, and if the pitcher had seen you started, as likely he would have got nervous and pitched a ball instead of a strike. You failed to do it and died on second. Those are the things that a ball player should watch. It is the little things that count. Pennant winners study those things. Doyle, afraid to take chance. The reason I didn't start, explained Doyle, was that I was afraid to take a chance as there were two out and we needed one run to win. No, that wasn't it, Larry, replied McGraw. You just didn't see the point. That's all. Suppose there were two out. Don't you think we would have had a better chance to win if you had reached third and the batter had reached first? The biggest advantages in baseball... The biggest advantage in baseball is to have a runner on third and first, and you know it. I don't get that, spoke up Tesro, who is always listening for something new. Tell it to me, Mac. Hello, bear hunter, chirped McGraw, who likes to be asked questions. Come over here. Did you know, went on the manager, that a large percentage of the hits in baseball are made when there are runners on first and third? 
That is the best time in the world to get a hit because the whole infield is tightened up and stationary. The first baseman is glued to his sack, and the third baseman is also having held pretty tight on account of having to watch the runner. The shortstop and the second baseman are getting ready for a throw, and whichever one is to cover has to edge over toward the second bag. The infield is unable to cover any ground, and hitting under those circumstances is easy. Again, went on McGraw. There are all kinds of chances to pull off plays. We can work the double steal, the delayed steal, and all kinds of plays which will net a run in case any player on the opposite side makes a bad throw. Always get a runner on first and third if possible, and it's worth taking a chance at any time. That the lack of attention to those little things is what loses pennants certainly sounds logical. There is another thing that he says makes ball games different now from the days of the old Orioles and Boston Club. He says there is entirely too much conversation around the bases between opposing players. Instead of trying to be pleasant, the little manager says they ought to be on their tiptoes every minute watching for the next move. According to him, the fire in the eye is the thing. Ask no quarter and give none. After the game here this afternoon, the Giants leave for Norfolk. After that, they go to Richmond and Baltimore. On next Saturday, they arrive in New York in time to play Yale. And let's see, there's another one of these rectangular box short bits. McGraw would like to get catcher Street of Senators. Greensboro, North Carolina, April 3rd. Before leaving Atlanta, McGraw had a long talk with manager McAleer of the Washington team, and it was rumored that they were up to some kind of trade, but nothing developed. McGraw had several conversations with catcher Street, and he would like very much to get him in New York. Street is generally considered the best catcher in the American League, and that makes it impossible, practically, for the Giants to get him. Every club in the American League would grab him first. Reds outclassed by Highlanders. Chase's men superior to Griffith's team in every department of game. Cincinnati, April 3rd, staff correspondent. It doesn't look as though the Hilltops will have any further opportunity of humiliating the Cincinnati Reds this year, unless the two teams win pennants in their respective leagues, as the weather is likely to prevent today's game. Chances of the Reds accomplishing the latter feat are, well, write your own ticket. That is judging by what they have shown in these two games against Hal Chase's men, in both of which they were outclassed so far as to hardly let one believe that the two teams are of equal strength. There has been nothing done which the men of Chase did not do better than those laboring under Clark Griffith, the old general of the Hilltops. They outbattled them, outfielded them, and outwitted them. Reds lack teamwork. Griffith's team by no means, and they have had the same opportunity of training as have the Hilltops, compares with the New Yorkers. Individually, the team looks great. As a baseball machine, there seems to be a, the lack of teamwork to make it perfect.
Griffith is not paying attention to the inside game, and time after time, chances to score runs have been thrown away by the command to kill the ball. Only in pitchers does Griffith look weak when it comes to sizing up the men. He has many a cast-off on his roll, and he is hoping for the best. His outfield is fast enough, and his infield is snappy, but the men so far have not shown that they know exactly what to do with the ball when they get hold of it. That's not the fault of the New York Americans, who have taken advantage of every little slip the local set have made. Chase is the same old Chase and has silenced many a rooter by his work in cutting off base hits and making force outs of sacrifice hits. And at the bat, Chase has shown as bright as any star and caused many to remark that he is the greatest player they have ever saw. Clark Griffith and Frank Bancroft, the secretary of the Reds, declare Chase has one of the best teams they have seen put together and expect to see them perform to the notch they are capable of all year. Neither has been backward in declaring the team a fine one, and as for pitchers, Griffith thinks the squad is as fine as any club in the league, in any league. Let's see. Two Brooklyn teams to play at Asheville, not Nashville, North Carolina. Asheville NC, April 3rd, the Brooklyn National League Club, headed by manager Bill Dolan and treasurer Henry Medicus, have arrived here. The men all look in good condition and are anxious for the opening of the season. Manager Dolan will give the natives a chance to see his team in action, as he intends to split the players up into two teams and have them oppose each other in full games today and tomorrow. Manager Dillon and Treasurer, Treasurer Mendicus paid a visit to the hospital at Knoxville, Tennessee, where Lejeune is confined, and were more than pleased to learn from the house physician that Lejeune was improving and would be able to leave the hospital in a few days. When Dolan informed the players of Lejeune's improvement, they were happy. Oh, okay, this, there's more Hilltop stuff that kind of jumped the column, but as long as we didn't miss it, that's what counts. Ray Fisher showed in Saturday's game. Okay, so we are going to hear about Saturday's game, which the Hilltops won by the score of 8-3, to three, that he is all the pitcher he was declared to be by those who saw him work last fall. And so is Ray Caldwell, who worked for three innings of that game, being called on to work when he was cold and getting away with but five hits charged against him. Caldwell is the coldest proposition the Reds have met, and his change of pace is what has appealed to the experts of the Porkopolis more than anything else. Aha. And the fans, 2,486 of them who turned out yesterday to see their team humiliated to the tune of 6-1, got a slant at Jim Vaughn and Jack Quinn. Jim Vaughn worked seven innings and just allowed the Reds two little hits. If by any chance the sun does come out today, the two teams will get at it again, and Quinn will be sent about five innings, and Ray Caldwell will be called on to do the rest. Harry Abels would have been asked to take a fling because the Reds show a weakness for left-handed pitchers, 
but Harry is nursing a severe cold and is wrapped up in the hay and blankets for a couple of days. Hmm, and let's see, that, that may be it for today. Oh, wait, 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 here we go. Both athletics and Quakers beat Jersey teens. Champions down Newark's while Phillies find Jersey City easy victim. Philadelphia's two major ball clubs had a very pleasant Sabbath for they both spent the afternoon chalking up victories. The Athletics, beating the Indians in their first game at Newark by a score of 12-3, and the Quakers stinging the skeets at Jersey City to the tune of 12-6. The world's champions didn't have any trouble whatsoever in winning from the Newarks as the latter lacked condition while they were in midsummer form. While they, rather, were in midsummer form. Uh, I can't read much of Ludies pitched most of the game for the big leagues and had his opponents at his mercy while the four slabmen that took flings at the athletics were batted all over the lots for a total of 18 hits. The feature of the game between Mel Doolin's men and the Jersey City team was the batting of second baseman Otto Nabe, who stepped to the plate five times and got a hit each time. The Phillies had their battling clothes on and made just as many hits as he did, as did rather, the athletics in their game. It was an odd thing, too, that they made just as many runs. Okay, well, yeah, we covered all of our, like, reasonably local teams. And uh, we're going to continue with this with the proper year, 1911. If you have any comments or anything else, again, the email address is always kpqr.torc at gmail.com. And uh, until the next time we meet, uh, yep, yeah, good old baseball and uh, set the controls for the heart of the fun.